Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This episode is a continuation of my series on aging and end-of-life issues. In previous episodes, I had interviews on palliative care, hospice care, and the use of music in the context of hospitals and hospice settings. My guest for this episode is Dr. Aditi Sethi, who is the founder and executive director of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. Dr. Sethi is a hospice and palliative care physician, end-of-life doula, and musician who is an emerging and important voice for shifting our culture's understanding and approach to dying, death, and bereavement care. She is featured in the film The Last Ecstatic Days, which is about her working with and alongside Ethan Sesser in his journey with terminal brain cancer. She is here to tell us about her work and soon-to-be-launched center. So welcome, Aditi. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you. Well, why don't we begin uh, by letting you kind of tell your own life journey, uh, and especially as that has led you uh, into your uh, passion for palliative care and for your starting uh, your center. Right. I can uh, back up to when I was 17. I'm 42 now. I was an undergrad at Davidson College, and I um, began volunteering for hospice then. Um, At the college, they really valued incoming students volunteering in different arenas, and, and hospice spoke to me at the hospice fair or the volunteer fair. And I began learning skills um, that would teach me how to be present for people in their final days to months of life. And that journey with hospice volunteerism really stuck with me throughout my early 20s into medical school. And I did family medicine training and ended up specializing in hospice and palliative care. Um, and what was really striking along the way was that so little attention um, and conversation went into the, the topic of death and dying, even in medical training back then, so 2004. Um, and so I was really aware that, that this part of life isn't really looked at with eyes wide open and um, with curiosity. So that left an impression. So before you started the center, where did you work and how did yeah. you work? So when I finished my training in 2012, I joined a beautiful hospice program here in Asheville and worked in an inpatient hospice facility for 10 years, um, which really was an incredible journey and opportunity to learn really how we approach death in our allopathic medical model. And I learned a lot of skills. I learned a lot of practices of presence, how to be present with people who are facing death. Um, Oftentimes it was a crisis-driven response to death because many people were coming from the hospital when medical treatments were no longer helping them, and they would transition to hospice and would only be with us for days, you know, to a week or so. So I learned a lot, um, but I also saw that so few people were coming to us prepared for death and having even expressed their wishes to their loved ones about their final days, and that it didn't sit right with me over time. When you talk uh, 
uh, about being present uh, with someone? What does that mean? Uh, oftentimes, when I would walk into a room of someone who was dying, I could sense a lot of the fear, anxiety, um, lack of familiarity with the process of dying. Family members didn't had some of them had never experienced the death of anyone in their lives. So I could really sense all of the emotions that were present in a space in the room. And sometimes the most therapeutic thing I could offer was my open heart, my listening ear, and my presence. So my willingness to be with the the loved ones and the person dying, no matter what emotions were arising, no matter what questions were arising, no matter if there was denial about death or not, you know, I just, I was able to be with them um, with an open heart. Well, so how did you decide to move from working in a hospice center to beginning your center? What led to that? So when I was in my early days after training, so when I had just graduated and I was on my own, I started noticing certain gaps that the medical model and traditional hospice model couldn't and couldn't fill and perhaps wasn't tasked to filling. And some of those gaps were uh, focusing on celebrating a life well-lived or supporting someone 24-7. So hospice programs offer in-home care, but you still need a family or community to take care of you 24-7. And I was finding certain people, especially now with children all over the world or people not having children, um, that there were gaps in care provided to those individuals. Um, So oftentimes they would have to go to a nursing home in their final days or um, need to find another alternative place to go because the inpatient hospice is reserved for people with symptom management needs. It's not caregiving needs. That doesn't qualify you to come in to a center, like a facility. So that that combined with the fear of death that I was seeing and that that was not being addressed in the medical model and very little funding goes to education upstream of an illness. um, That combined with, so the gaps in caring and the lack of education and contemplation and preparation for death really um, made me curious about alternative ways to be with death and to address this essentially cultural phobia around death and dying and denial of death that I was experiencing and seeing. And so I I gathered a group of maybe 20 people in Asheville back in 2014, and I said, hey, let's come together and just vision what aging and dying could look like. What, what could, how could we get creative around this process? So the, the journey started then in 2014, but it wasn't until 2021 that I committed to devoting my life to an, this alternative vision or this alternative option. And that's where the center emerged from that um, commitment. So how did, how, how did you get started <laughs> then? What did you do to get started? Yeah, so I, back in 2017, I founded the Center for Conscious Living and Dying as an LLC and I was still working full-time and having children, and so it was a passion project. An L-O-T? L-L-C, sorry, Limited Liability Company. Okay. <laughs> um, it was just an entity, an entity. Um, just claimed the name and got did the paperwork to be a, you know registered with the state. And so as an LLC, it was really my focus at that point was, let me just see if I can curate resources for people 
Because I, I would get, you know, calls from community members and friends asking basic questions about hospice and palliative care. And so maybe I, you know, I thought let's curate resources and connect people to resources. Um, and I ended up working with Cassie Barrett, who ran Carolina Memorial Sanctuary here in Asheville, which is a, a conservation green burial ground. And we worked together on that project for a couple of years. Um, but come 2021, I had this opportunity, a beautiful opportunity to take care of this soul, Ethan Sisser, who was 36 years old, dying of a glioblastoma, brain tumor. And he was dying in a room, a hospice house in Charlotte, um, and really wanted to die in community. And it was around, it was during COVID, so that um, his options were limited. His, his main community was in Hawaii, where he had lived, but his family, his parents lived in, um, were living in Charlotte. So I got a call from a friend saying, hey, this brother needs our help. He's dying of a brain tumor. He wants to die in community, and he wants to film his dying process. He had been documenting his journey on social media um, with cancer and then ultimately with his death. And so we brought him to Asheville. We rallied around him, but filming wasn't allowed in the facility I worked in. So we got creative and transported him to a house overlooking these beautiful mountains. And I called on that same community from 2014, said, hey, somebody needs our help. Are you willing to support? And whole community came together to care for this loving soul. And there is a film coming out, documentary about that journey. And the name of it is? The Last Ecstatic Days. The Last Ecstatic Days. And so when do you think that'll be? They, uh, we, they just got accepted into a, the Santa Fe International Film Festival. So they're going through the circuit. And we'll see you about distribution options after that. I'm not sure okay. when, but stay tuned. Um, and that journey for me really catalyzed the center um, emerging into what it is now, which is a nonprofit um, uh, community-supported end-of-life care model for care. Well, and, and I noticed that, that you, uh, on your website, um, you talk about the building of community a lot. Um, so talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, as, you, as you understand it, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by the community and what is the community? Yeah. So there are so many different types of communities. And when I think about this approach to end-of-life care, I think about people gathering, people from all walks of life, gathering together to be of service to those who are in their final season of life. And in order to do to be supportive of people who are dying, there's some, there's, it's important to have some self-reflection and contemplation about your, and, and cultivation of a relationship with death personally before you can really serve at the bedside. And so when I think of community, I think of um, individuals gathered with a shared purpose, but with a shared, in, and, and a shared intention and doing some deep inner work as well. Um, to to serve okay well and you and you also yeah you talk about inner work uh and growth uh how do you understand those terms mm -hmm. uh what is inner work how do you understand what growth is yeah i think when i worked in healthcare, um i'm still part-time hospice doc part-time director of the center but in healthcare, um 
there is very little attention given to one a, a caregiver or a provider's own experience of caring for someone. And so what happens sometimes is we internalize a lot of grief and sadness and we internalize a lot of um, the interactions that we've had and we don't really take time to process those experiences. And oftentimes that builds up in our system and leads to burnout and compassion fatigue and all the things that we're seeing in healthcare. And so if attention and time is given to self-reflection, um, really understanding our reactions to things, the impact of an experience on our psyche, on our heart, on our soul, then it, it takes a certain level of maintenance and intention to do it regularly. Then, then there's an opportunity to, to evolve and grow in the work. Um, and so self, uh, what were the questions you asked? The self inner work and growth. Yes. I think it can look different for different people and can, people can use different tools to achieve that or to evolve themselves, whether it's meditation, spiritual practices, um, attending church, communities, all those things, um, or self-help, you know, there's a self-help world out there. Um, but any, any, any opportunity to really look at our conditioning, our reactions, our expectations, our judgments um, in real time. Uh, I think is an opportunity to grow. It offers an opportunity for inner exploration and growth to understand yourself, understand your values, understand how your experiences affect your reality, your present reality. So what do you do differently uh, with the patient and the caregiver? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I'm guessing, and my understanding is, is that this inner journey and this, growth is for both people yeah how are they different in what you do yeah so thank you for that question so we haven't formally opened our center but we've had the privilege of taking care of a few souls that needed our help Um, and one example so so even the preparation and training um, that we will offer volunteers um, includes time for self-reflection, um, deep kind of contemplation on, again, past experiences that have impacted how we see the world, how we react to the world, how we um, how we care for others. And so there's a lot of self-reflection and contemplation built into the training, so that's one thing. Then while we're caring for individuals, weekly we'll have what we call a care circle where anybody who's been in contact with this individual and their families um, will have an opportunity to come together and share what's coming up for them, what they've experienced, they, some practical logistical things, skills, you know, all those things that we can look at, um, but also our reaction and personal experience of what's happening. So that, that'll be an ongoing um, way that people who are doing the caregiving can reflect openly and grow. Okay. Um, so that's one example. What about the, the, the client themselves? What yeah, so the resident, um, we, on our intake, we have a, a, what we call a deeper dive where we get to really look at and explore individuals' um, fears, regrets, wishes, um, desires for legacy, support, really looking a little more deeply into their life journey. 
and offering creative ways to address some of their concerns or regrets or um, desires uh, before they die. So um, that can include um, legacy work, legacy song, writing, um, writing letters, any just different ways. We're kind of incorporating different modalities to supporting people in addition to a more holistic approach to someone's dying days using music and acupuncture and aromatherapy and different modalities for care, massage, those sorts of things, which are accessible to people who are dying otherwise, but not often utilized. Well, you talk about uh, being a doula. Uh, What's a doula? Mm. An end-of-life doula is a non-medical supportive presence for an individual and their families, um, an individual who's dying and their families, and offers emotional spiritual, psychological, practical care and support. Um, so it's really a supportive presence along this journey. And you can connect with a doula anytime while you're healthy, while you're young, or when you're diagnosed with an illness, a terminal illness. So do you, I mean, do you train doulas? Yeah, so we will have an end-of-life doula training program open to anyone in the country or the world. Um, but in addition, any volunteer who comes through our program essentially is getting the doula training. So we'll get a certificate to be an end-of-life doula. Okay. So really, it's, the idea is empowering individuals to learn the skills, to be prepared to confront death of themselves and others, um, and to serve their own communities as well. Well, uh, you say that your center uh, provides four things. Uh direct care, education, resources, uh, and death services collective. So kind of tell us about each of those four things and what what that is, what those do. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the direct care portion of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying offers uh, care for up to three people in a residential home. And it will be 24-7 care provided by volunteers and offered for people who have about a two months or less prognosis, and it's free of charge to people who need that support. There's also, and, and sorry, hospice will come into the home just like it would anybody's residence, so that service is still there, and they provide all the medical care. We just provide the care, not just. <laughs> we provide the 24-7 caregiving support. Okay. And there's also what's also... Uh, emerging is this need for just a little extra support in the home so people can stay in their home. So we're in the process of exploring what that offering could look like um, and to supplement care in the home for caregivers because we know there's such a huge caregiver crisis right now and there's a lot of need for extra support. So that's the direct care piece. Any questions about that? Uh, No. Yeah, yeah, I think I understand that. Yeah. Uh, Education... We've already mentioned the end-of-life doula training program as an opportunity for people to come and learn skills that would support them to serve those who are dying and their families. In addition, we have an, a lot of offerings for the community that will be open to the community and some that are internal for members. And uh, we have an event space there where we'll be offering different workshops and, and offerings. Um. And ultimately, I could see us going into different 
areas of our community, church communities, schools, to offer basic education about death, dying, and grief. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunity there. Also, I had a, a friend who runs the palliative care program here in Asheville, and he came out to the center, and one of his comments was that physicians need this level of support and care and opportunity to learn and grow with regards to death and death awareness. So I think we could evolve into offering some off, some educational opportunities for providers too down the road. What do you do in your conferences? We don't have any conferences yet. On our website, the Center for Conscious Living and Dying, ccld.community, there are a lot of offerings listed there, and we invite our members to post events that they're hosting and organizing. So you may have seen some conferences there um, that are hosted by members. Okay. And then resources. Uh, we are in the process of curating resources. If you go to our website now, there are certain – you can click on a resource tab that will take you to the hospice programs locally, some of the legal support that you could find in Asheville, local resources and community offerings. Um, and then the Death Services Collective are – it's an opportunity for members to who have a private practice or um, – offer services privately where they can be sort of featured and um, accessed, so like a, a network of sorts where people can access their services. So that's what the Death Services Collective is. So if you go to that tab on the website, you'll see Death Doulas listed if you're interested in working with one privately, um, acupuncturists, massage therapists who are specialized in end-of-life care or feel comfortable with that, caring for those who are in that um, season. And... Um, home funeral celebrants and, or I'm sorry, funeral, um, home support, shroud, people who make shrouds. So there's a, just a different, a, a, a wide range of offerings. Well, I noticed that there was like, like legal support. Legal and, support. Yeah. So those are just privately contracted. It's not something we offer through the center, but we connect you to those people. Okay. Okay. Um, well, if you scroll down on your homepage, <laughs> uh, there are some just amazing community events listed there. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about those. Uh, so we have community events open to anyone in the local or uh, national community. Um, and those are not hosted by the center per se, but they are um, supported by the center. So people in our community, our members can share events that they're hosting and offering and we put those on the website and they you know the conscious living part of our name is such a broad it's so broad it can include spirituality conversations sex conversations on sexuality conversations on communication practices um, psychedelics and death are on there the institute for psychedelics and death offers programming at warren wilson so we're supporting that conversation um ecstatic dance, anything that helps us be more embodied and in community, celebrating life is on that community calendar. So you're right, there's a qu quite a broad range of offerings. Um, and, it, and all of these kind of cultivate the opportunity to be with community and be in community and deepen in community. So, um, How does one become a member? So we opened up to volunteer members. So we have three types of members right now. There's donor members, 
because we are a traditional nonprofit and heavily dependent on donations. Um, so donor members can get involved any time of year, and there's a annual fee or request, and that'll go up as we evolve and grow. And then there's volunteer members. Those are the two main ways to get involved. We opened up volunteering early in our evolution, and I was amazed at the the flow of interest and the um, support that was that came through. So we ended up having to s- slow down membership. Actually, I think we're up to almost 200 members. So quarterly or so, we'll open up to volunteer support again, and um, that'll be in October. So people can go to the website, sign up for the wait list, and there's a quite an extensive process to becoming a volunteer member. Okay. And the third? The third is uh, people who are interested in partnering with us, offering programming, helping us um, share our mission and vision, and it's by invitation only, but it's called a partner member um, membership. Okay. Well, the work that you're doing is amazing uh, and uh, vital. Uh, so thank you, thank uh, you for your vision on that, uh, for being aware of uh, what's lacking uh, in, in the hospice model uh, and so being willing to provide uh, the gap uh, for that. Thank you. So thank you for being with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to share. And, you know, we're still emerging, so it feels like quite an experiment. <laughs> but being met, which is lovely. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Draper. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe, and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth